welcome back to Westside Unscripted, the podcast where the pastors loosen their ties, throw away their notes, and answer questions about all things theology and culture, shooting from the hip, so to speak. And so I'm Josh Bartels. That can be dangerous. That can be very dangerous. You could shoot your toe. So <laughs> got to be careful how, how uh, practiced your quick draw is. Well, I'm Josh Bartels, assistant to the pastors here at Westside, and I am here, as usual, with our preaching pastor, Peter Montoro. And uh, as is typical practice, he has brought something he wants to recommend uh, to us to, uh, in this case, it's not reading. What do you got? Well, there's a uh, podcast. Uh, so you, some of you may have heard me mention Alistair Roberts. Uh, and, you know, like any, any you know, sort of figure out there, <laughs> a, a recommendation of, of someone is being useful is not an endorsement of everything they have to say about everything. Uh, but in particular, I wanted to highlight, he did a three-part series. They're brief. Um, 18, one was 18 minutes. The other's like a half hour. And the other's like 20-something minutes. And uh, the first one was called The Danger of Apologetics. Uh, the second one was called Unruly Media and Our Disordered Discourse. And then the final one that just came out yesterday is called A Quest for Healthier Thought and Discourse. Uh, and he's on a number of different podcasts in, in different formats. And uh, his his personal podcast, though, is called Alistair's Adversaria. Uh, and can we add that to the show notes? Yeah. And so in this series of podcasts, he's talking about how when we are framing our own thoughts about how to read the scriptures, primarily in terms of reading them, looking for ammunition against like, that'll really preach against them, whoever they may be, right? Whether it's with inner Christian dialogue or in we're trying to prove our point against some opponent within the Christian circles, or even if it's trying to prove our points against unbelievers, it can very uh, much narrow our field of what we're looking for in the text rather than uh, reading the text imaginatively and, and getting all that we can do, uh, all that we can get out of the text, we'll be looking for, you know, ammunition. And when you're looking for ammunition, you, you, you're not a very good reader. Uh, and so he's talking about that, that issue specifically, but that becomes sort of an entree into uh, thinking about the ways in which we develop our thoughts and how social media is tremendously distortive in terms of creating healthy speech cultures. Um, you know, whereas healthy speech requires uh, space and reflection and privacy to be able to try ideas out and not, you know, have them held against you forever. Uh, the sort of rapid fire environment of social media can distort that. Um, and especially if that becomes your primary way of thinking out loud or of thinking in community, uh, it can really shape the way that you're communicating in really unhealthy ways. Um, and so what would be some some other ways of, you know, pushing against that. He's not necessarily, you know, he's on social media. He's not saying, you know, everyone uh, should, you know, no one should ever be on any of those platforms, but thinking about the way that our, our uh, structures in which we're communicating are affecting, you know, what we have to say. And it's been very helpful to me uh, just thinking about, you know, what sort of culture of speech should we have uh, in, in the church and what are we doing? How are our structures shaping the way that we're speaking and the different forums that we have in you know, how we use realm, all these different things that we do, like what kind of cultures of speech are we creating? What are we encouraging? What are we making more difficult? Um, and I thought it was really helpful and uh, worth checking out. Cool. And not directly related to that, but the fruit of th thinking well, we've got a book in the bookstore by him and Andrew Wilson called Echoes yes, of Exodus that. that would be a good companion with our Sunday night series yes, it would through be. Exodus. So, right. Yeah. And it really, that book is really about... Um, have you read it? I have not, no. 
is worth reading. Um, that book is some of the, you know, I, I talk quite frequently, especially in the Matthew series about these patterns, these echoes throughout scripture. And it's a really easy book, really short chapters that sort of gives it a really good introduction to that way of reading. And it shows how the Exodus story shows up over and over and over again, um, all throughout both being prefigured even before Exodus in the life of Abraham and then all the way through to the, you know, to the crucifixion and, and the end of all things. So, yeah. So check that out. So we've got a, uh, member question here today that has uh, two parts, one of them very broad, another one uh, pretty specific. So one of them is what are angels? Uh, So very broadly, what are they? And then uh, more specifically, how is it that they ministered to Jesus and to us? Like, so when it comes to Jesus is in the wilderness, he has, uh, I believe that's what they're referencing probably is when he's in the wilderness, he has his temptation. And then the Bible says that the angels came and ministered to him. So uh, both of those, I'll leave, leave you to ta- tackle those in whichever order you would like. Yeah. So, I mean, so the, the, uh, first thing is that the word that's translated. So in Greek, it's going to be angelos. Um, and that's where we get our English word angel from. And in Hebrew, hopefully I have the pronunciation right without looking at it, it's like malak or something like that. Um, I'd have to look at the text to be able to be certain, but it's like, that's the the Hebrew word. And both of those simply means messenger. Uh, And they're used of both what we refer to when we think of as angels, so spirits that are sent by God to accomplish his purposes, but they're also both used of human messengers, both in the Old and the New Testament. Uh, So there are messengers that are clearly some sort of spiritual being, uh, and there's other messengers that are clearly just ordinary humans sent by other humans. Um, so the question of, you know, messenger, it's what we would call an angel. If it's a messenger that, you know, God has sent, that is something other than a human being, even though they take a human form. So you've got all these, these instances of the appearances of angels all throughout the old Testament and indeed in the new Testament, you know, so God sends, uh, an angel to rescue Peter from prison. Uh, God sends an angel to take care of Jesus, um, in the wilderness when he's hungry and angels come and they feed him, you know, with angels food. Um, God sends an angel to talk to Gideon. Um, and then you have, especially in the Old Testament, you have all of these uh, references to the angel of the Lord, where, you know, whereas the, the angels, you know, where it's just, you know, angel more general, you've got, you know, a lot of spiritual beings and they, they appear in human form um, and they, they seem to be like a messenger similar to what we see in the New Testament. In the Old Testament, you also have uh, these references to the angel of the Lord in a way that the angel of the Lord is identified with the Lord himself in a much stronger sense than say the, um, the angels of Jesus's tomb, where it's pretty clear they are, they're there as messengers, they're spiritual beings, but they're clearly not Jesus. They're clearly not the father. Um, but the angel of the Lord, uh, is much, there's a lot more overlap in that respect. Uh, and so you've got sort of a big, big picture. And so the part that's clear is that there is an order of spiritual beings, um, that are not naturally embodied. So there's no, no reason to believe because uh, Hebrews talks about, pardon me, Hebrews 1.14 uh, is the closest to a definition of angels that we have. Are they not all ministering spirits? So they're not, uh, they're not embodied creatures like humans are, but they're ministering spirits sent forth to minister for them who shall be heirs of salvation. So they do stuff for God, for humans, basically. Um, 
And uh, we also know that, you know, there are fallen angels that are rebel spirits that are also spirits that were also created by God that have rebelled against him. And we're told almost nothing about the rebellion of the fallen angels, uh, because even those passages like uh, in Ezekiel, I think it's 20s, somewhere in the 20s, maybe 26, and Isaiah 14 that are taken to be talking about the fall of Satan, they're really talking about human kings and using imagery you know, using this exalted angelic imagery to talk about these human kings. So they may tell us something indirectly about the fall of Satan, but that's not what's actually being spoken about in the context. So we should take, you know, we, 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 we can't necessarily read that and say, okay, here is why Satan fell. So it's, it's using an analogy, but the, the fall of Satan is not actually the main topic. The main topic is the king of Babylon and his pride and his hubris, which is being compared to you know, the pride of the fallen angelic powers, but it doesn't necessarily speak directly about that because it's an illustration rather than the main topic. And I think there's probably a good reason why we're not told a lot about the fall of them, but we know that there are these good spiritual powers and there are bad spiritual powers. We know that the bad spiritual powers um, can, possession is probably not, not it's not a word that you find uh, in the New Testament in, in that way. Like, it's not like, you know, the demon possesses someone, but clearly the demon can take up residence in a human being. Um, and the demon can be in control to a certain extent of that human's actions. So it's more, someone has suggested the phrase demonized, that they're under demonic influence. Um, and there's just some, I forget all the details, but there's a little, there's a few, few problems with the language of possession, but clearly they're, you know, taking over, um, you know, so that the, uh, the, the man who brings, uh, his son, he talks about, there's the, you know, the demon tries to throw him into the fire and into the water and he's trying to destroy him. So there's this destructive spiritual, spiritual power. And conversely, we have these instances of uh, beneficial um, spiritual powers that are ministering uh, to Jesus, to Peter and to others. And uh, so, and it is clear that uh, at least the positive spiritual beings can take on bodily form. They don't have bodies, they're not embodied in the way that we are, but they appear as young men, often very terrifying men, um, you know, so there's often a fear and a terror when the angel shows up. Uh, and so then the angel of the Lord uh, seems to be, in, at least in some instances, a appearance of the pre-incarnate Christ. So he's not, he hasn't, he, he's, so there's a difference between taking on a human appearance and taking on entering into human nature. So in the incarnation, Christ enters into human nature and he becomes human. Um, but angels don't become human. They just take on some visible appearance of, um, you know, humanity so that they can speak or whatever. Uh, and so you have that ambiguity. It's not, you know, God himself, it's not, um, you know, the Lord himself can't be seen but the Lord is manifesting himself through the work of this angel in a way that's more direct than, than uh, just angels in general. Uh, and so it would seem to be in keeping to see that as uh, appearances of the pre-incarnate, you know, second person of the Trinity, not taking on humanity, but taking on an angelic, angelic body, whatever an angelic body would be, we're really not told enough to speculate what that would be, but taking on some sort of physical appearance so that he can communicate, um, you know, with human beings. Uh, and it's really mysterious. And it's the language is like, 
you'll like have talk about the Lord speaking, the angel speaking, the angel of the Lord. You have this multi-layered language. And uh, one comment that I had occasion to refer to quite a few times in our series on Genesis uh, was it's being deliberately ambiguous to highlight the difficulty of communicating <laughs> divine appearances in human language. Um, and so you'll have this like, it's not like the writers are confused. They're deliberately communicating. There's no real right way to say this. <laughs> um, yeah. And that, and that, so then when in the scriptures we have uh, descriptions of physical form, mm-hmm. whatever that physical form is that they're seeing is a manifestation of something. It is not an embodied, it's not like the, the angel has that permanent form then you're saying like that right. th- that form is just for the manifestation of communicating the message or giving the command or ministering in whatever way they've been called to minister. Right. Yeah. So, I mean, because Hebrew says that they're spirits, they're not, they're not embodied, embodied creatures in the way that man is the image of God in that way. Um, so. And presumably there's something that then we could interact with. I'm thinking of the passage in one of Paul's epistles where he says, be given to hospitality for by it. Uh, some have entertained angels unawares. Is it speaking specifically of this kind of angelic manifestation? I'm I'm sure there's a couple, I'm, I'm sure there's some who might you know, might try to make that verse say something else. But to me, the obvious sense is that, yes, you know, sometimes we know that there are angelic forces about. Uh, sometimes, you know, we may interact with angels and not even be aware that they are, um, you know, so that we may have many more interactions with angels than we realize, um, you know, that God, you know, and they're able to act and interact with the physical world in some way, even as spirits that they, you know, God sends them to do. And, you know, if, uh, and he gives them charge over us to keep watch over us as his children. And so we have, you know, there's a lot of things going on. You have that passage in Daniel where, you know, Michael talks about how, you know, conflicts, spiritual mm-hmm. conflicts in the heavens are, you know, determining the fate of nations in ways that those nations may not be directly aware of. Yeah. Um, I mean, we, you know, right now we've got the conflict going on between the Ukraine and Russia and it's, you know, we can't know what's happening, but it, but in the terms of Daniel, it's very likely that there could be some kind of, <laughs> or it's very, it's possible. It's within the realm of possibility that these kinds of things are being governed by uh, the spiritual warfare that we can't see. Absolutely. Yeah. And it's one of the interesting things is when missionaries go to a place where demonic presence is strong and the gospel has never been before, you often have, we talked about this with the spiritual right, gifts, yeah. you often have these really striking um you know, manifestations of spiritual warfare on both sides that, you know, where the demons are more visible, the angels are more visible as well. Um, and it is, uh, something we may be, uh, unfortunately as the West is in <laughs> inviting demons back, uh, in, in so many ways, I think we're going to see, you know, a, I mean, we already are seeing, um, an uptick of, of spiritual warfare in that sense that's visible to us. The spiritual warfare is always going on, right? but, but the visibility of it. Yeah, the visibility of it yeah. is going to vary. Um, but as our world becomes more openly pagan and more openly open to demonic forces, then, you know, just the rise of the new age, all of these things are opening people up to demonic spiritual forces. Um, and so, you know, when you have open demonic possession, then there's occasion to have, you know, open demonic dispossession uh, in what Jesus did. We have all of this spiritual conflict taking place. Yeah. You know, this discussion makes me think of C.S. Lewis because you've got the screw tape yes. letters and discussion of demonic activity and the, the strategies of, of demons uh, that is imaginary and fictional, but that 
at least makes sense and strikes at the heart of kind of that kind of thing. And then also though, when you were describing how, uh, the language of the scriptures make it so that the whole, the whole point is that the ambiguity of the description of the angels points out that it's just hard to put a divine right. vision into human form. It made me think of, uh, that hideous strength. Yes. And then again in the, uh, I, I think there's even a, maybe a por- portion toward the end of, uh, Perlandra where they're, the angels are coming together and he is describing them. And it is some of the more, uh, difficult language to read through and it's almost as if lewis is picking up on that same thing and making yeah. making the angelical. where he like is trying to explain like i can't really explain how this how this works but you know it's like yeah he picks up on that he's, he's very much in that tradition of of that and it is interesting just thinking you know even the demons um that jesus cast out of you know where they say we're legion and they 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 crave this embodiment like they're willing to go into the swine to be able to not you know, be disembodied. And that's something you see, um, you know, really just in a lot of more demonic things that they're deceptive and evil and they want to take up residence in flesh in some way. Yeah. Um, you know, this gets into another question that'll probably pop up at some time is the uh, discussion of the sons of God and the sons of the, in uh, Genesis chapter six. Uh, are those manifestations of fallen fallen uh, angels taking on physical form what's the uh do yeah you save I'd, that for I'd, another time or should I well i mean yeah. so i i think if you'd asked me five years ago i would have said definitely not if you'd asked me three years ago i probably would have said probably not i'm hesitant to say definitely but the more i think about it you know so yeah, andy wilson makes the argument like there had to be something really bad to merit the flood <laughs> and that is presented as the reason um, why the flood had to take place. And so, you know, some of the other explanations, like, you know, the righteous people intermarrying with wicked people and, uh, you know, the kings taking multiple wives, so the, you know, institution of polygamy, just those things happen all throughout the scriptures and they never get the kind of response (laughs) that whatever happens in Genesis 6 does. Um, and so given that in mind and given that it explicitly talks about giants and says that these people have to be wiped out, I'm warming up to the idea that that may be, (laughs) the text is definitely not unambiguous. Um, and that's kind of where I, where I came before that it is clearly saying that there's an idea in our culture, there's an ancient idea that the crossing of transgressive boundary crossing gives power and of whatever kind. And that's one of the things that all of the interpretations that have been proposed have in common is that all of them are the transgressing of divinely appointed boundaries as a means to gain power. Um, And so God says that this kind of transgressive boundary crossing, whether we want to go, you know, whole hog and say it's demons taking human women, um, or we want to take one of the other interpretations, they all have this in common. And they all say that this is a lie of the devil. Transgressive boundary crossing leads to divine wrath and total destruction. So don't do it. Um, So it's clearly saying whether or not it's saying that's what's actually happened. It's clear that many in the ancient world thought that was what happened and that there and that god is saying that's a bad thing don't do it so all the stories about the greek you know 
Uh, and it's interesting how this, this this gets picked up in a lot of places. All the stories about the Greek, you know, Hercules. Uh, you have you know a divine, and you have all the Greek heroes of Greek mythology. Um, you know, are the offspring of divine and human, <laughs> divine and human mixes, uh, and you know, which we would call you know, scripture calls the Greek gods demons. So you've got demons and human women showing up again, and they turn out to be giants, and they do a lot of crazy stuff. So. Mm-hmm. There does seem to be an overlap there, um, but you know that that's bad and should be judged. And God, in fact, did judge it and will judge it. Um, yeah. So there does seem to be some kind of even in that story, some kind of uh, craving of embodiment. Yep. On the part of the demons, yep. that seems to show up as some kind of uh, characteristic of them. So that's interesting. Yeah. There's a lot of interesting stuff. But yeah, I, you so know, where I, were, if if people wanted to uh, do some reading, there's obviously the, since it's such a speculative uh, thing, there's a lot of stuff out there that's maybe not good. Well, where Google would it. someone where would someone go to uh, <laughs> begin kind of looking into the Bible's use of angels and that kind of thing? You know, it's the sort of thing I don't know of a specific a specific book that I would want to recommend. It's the sort of thing that I feel like in some ways it's been left ambiguous for a reason. And so I might want to, you know, push against wanting to know a whole lot more, you know, like I, I'd, I'd say one way of doing it, it would be to, you know, uh, there's tools that will let you look for a Greek or a Hebrew word. Um, uh, you can do that using Step Bible as a free software. There's other soft, stepbible.org or .com. Um, it's a free software put up by Tindo House in Cambridge where you can look for a specific Greek or Hebrew word without knowing Greek or Hebrew, as long as you can find the right one, uh, and then look for it in an English translation so you can see all the references. So I would probably start with, you know, looking at all the different biblical passages, um, you know, but once you get much beyond that, you can, there's a danger to becoming too informed about the darkness. Um, and that, uh, that I think is something to be aware of, especially when you get studying, you know, demonic hierarchies and stuff like that. I think you've gone way too far. <laughs> You know, or angels that aren't mentioned in scripture and all the names of them that were, you know, are not revealed. Um, I think that can be dangerous. But knowing, you know, knowing well the scriptural passages would be a good place to start. And then, you know, a good systematic theology is going to have a chapter on spirit, spiritual beings. So sort of, you know, avoiding the over curiosity, but getting that in a broader picture of how to, you know, boil the. Uh, and we have a few systematic theologies in the, in the bookstore. So consulting a couple of them on. On that sort of picture would probably be where I would where I would go. Cool. Well, this has been another episode of West Side Unscripted. We're thankful for each of you who tune in and listen to uh, this podcast. We really appreciate it. If you have questions that you would like to ask Pastor Peter, uh, feel free to send those to my email. It's josh at bibledirectionforlife.com, or you can just contact me uh, right at church. So thanks again for listening, and we hope that you join us next week again for more talk about theology and culture here on West Side Unscripted. Unscripted.